Uh, the, other, the other evening, um, I had an evening with my kids. Rebecca was at a, her small group, and so it was just me and the, the other three. And uh, we're trying to, th- we wanted to eat pizza and watch a movie together. So we were looking through all the list of, well, really nothing worth watching things until we found something worth watching. And it was a movie from my childhood. Uh, you may remember it. it was, it's called Rookie of the Year. Remember Rookie of the Year? It's the story about the, the 12-year-old or 10-year-old Henry, whatever his last name is. They keep getting his name wrong all throughout the movie. Uh, he's the kid who, who hurts his shoulder, and he's stuck in the cast with his arm like this. And after he finally gets his, his arm out of the cast, the, everything healed in a funny way that allowed him to throw a baseball like over 100 miles per hour. And so he got to go to the, the major leagues and play um, uh, there for the Cubs, and, um, which is about what it would take for the Cubs to be any good. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a scene that, that was replaying in my head for some reason the other day. It's the scene where uh, Henry manages to get a, a, a deal with Pepsi. He's going to be their new spokesperson. And so uh, they're, what they're trying to do for a commercial was to recreate Ray Charles' iconic Diet Pepsi commercial from 1991. Do you remember, remember that one? It's the one that begins with, the, the song begins with, you know when it's right, you know when you feel it, baby. You hold it, you hear it, you taste it, it's right. Do you remember that song? It's the one with the, the line that I know all of you memorize and sing whenever you hear the song. If it's irresistibly sippable, incontestably tasteable, and eminently wonderful, you've what? Got, got the right one, baby, right? You remember the song? Come on, tell me, tell me you remember the song. Oh my goodness, there's people shaking their heads out there. Some of you are too young to remember that song, and apparently some of you are too old to remember that song. <laughs> Good grief. Well, I remember the song. Thank you very much. <laughs> I re- I'm not singing it, only if it's in a choir. I will sing it in a choir. <laughs> well, for whatever reason, well, because I saw the movie, I had that song stuck in my head the other day, and I was walking around campus and that song in my head playing on a loop. Um, and I just so happened at one point to be walking across the campus with, with Pastor Richard. And I was remarking to him that I had this ridiculous song stuck in my head from, what, 30, what, 30 over 30 years ago. And, um, and it occurred to me as I was talking to him, you know, Pepsi, their message was, you know, when you have Pepsi, you have the right one, right? And, and Coke, theirs is the real thing. And so I asked Richard, I said, what do you think these two brands are, are arguing for? And he answered rightly, they're both arguing that they have the authentic cola. If you have Pepsi, you have, you know, you have the right one. If you have Coke, you have the real thing. And that's what they're arguing about. Who has the authentic cola? Well, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. And I have to tell you, in the book of Colossians, Paul is concerned about pretty much the same thing. Not who has the authentic cola, but who has the authentic gospel? Who has the right one? What is the real thing? He says in, the, in, first, in verse 5 of the first chapter, if you have the authentic gospel, you can know it's the right one because it's the one you heard first. It's the first gospel that came to you. It's, as he says in verse 6, the same one that is going out around the world, even now, the one that is bearing fruit in people's lives. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, whom he refers to in verse 15 as the image of the invisible God. So it's not just 
the right message, it's the right message about the right person. And so he goes on this, this multiple verse, well, let's, some say it's, a, it's a, an early hymn in the Christian church, but he, he takes this, this message about Jesus and he distills it down in about five or six verses of who the real Jesus is. He's the, the image of the invisible God. He's the one who existed before all things and the one who created all things. He's the one who is supreme and reigns over all things. He superintends all things. It's because of him that all of creation continues to exist. He's the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's fully God. He's, he's not the same person as the Father, but he's equal to the Father. And the life of the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. He is the head of the church. He is the first in everything. And it is through his blood that God has reconciled all things to himself. If you believe this gospel, Paul says, if you have this Christ then you've got the right one, baby. And if that's true, we come to verse 23. He says, if that is true, you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. In Colossians, Paul is going to contend for the authentic gospel. And he's going to defend and he's going to justify his own ministry in light of the presence of these encroaching false teachers, these, these, these peddlers of another gospel, whom he calls deceivers, these people who come in with their, as he says in chapter 2, verse 4, they come in with their well-crafted arguments. They thought, they've thought a way that they can rewrite the gospel story, the way that they can present an alternative Jesus in, in the hopes that they might bring people to their side. And so, it is with that context in mind that we come to our passage here this morning. You probably already saw it in the bulletin there. In this passage here, at the end of chapter 1, Paul is going to tell the, Christ, the, the Colossian church how they can rightly identify not just the authentic Jesus, but how they can rightly identify authentic, God-given gospel ministry in that, within the context that we mentioned a moment ago. So turn if, with you if you would, with me, to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read the second half of verse 23, and then I'm going to read all the way down to the end of verse 29. If you grabbed a guest Bible there in the back, we're on page 950, if you'd like to follow along there. Colossians chapter 1, second half of verse 23, begins like this. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. 
Now, in this beautiful and, in many ways, well-known passage, Paul is summarizing the twofold nature of his apostolic ministry. The first, we saw there in verse 23, it is to proclaim the word of God, that is, the good news of Jesus Christ. But secondly, he says in verse 25, it's to serve the people of God, that is, his church. So, preach the word of God and serve the people of God. Now, the thing about these two aspects or these two dimensions to his apostolic ministry is that they're not two different complementary ministries. As if he might be engaging in one of these at some point in time, and then another time later he's doing another one, and you can distinguish the two from one another in an absolute sense. And that's not the case at all. No, it is by the preaching and the teaching of God's word that the church is formed and sustained and equipped. It's one and the same ministry. Yes, different dimensions to it, different aspects to it, but it's one and the same. There is no ministry of the word. There, there is no church apart from the ministry of the word. You remove the ministry of the word and the church withers and dies. It ceases to exist. And you can, you can see that happening all across the, our country right now. Churches that have forsaken the ministry of the word of God and then you see the results in the life of their church. It's falling apart. It's disappearing. It's it's. it's it's diminishing right before their very eyes. Without the ministry of the word, the church will wither and die. And Paul says, I establish the church and I serve the church by, verse 25, proclaiming his entire message to you. Not just part of the message. Not just the part that makes me comfortable or makes me happy or wins me accolades. No, I preach the whole gospel to the world. All of it for you. This message of a new, reconciled people Jew and Gentile, who are together one in Christ, who are filled with the very life of God himself, one whole, healthy, holy body. And Paul's goal, as one commissioned by Jesus himself to, to, to be an apostle on behalf of Christ in the world, is to dispense the word of God in such a way that every man, every woman, in every nation, of every color, of every station, in every background, who's done every kind of wicked wrong thing that can be done, that every single person will be brought to Christ and that every person would then be led toward maturity in Christ. Verse 28, we tell others about Christ, Why? What is the purpose of evangelism? What is the purpose of missions? What is the purpose of witnessing? Is it just to convince people to believe like we believe? Is it just to, to show people that they're wrong and put them in their place? Is it just to win them to our side, to our camp, our tribe? What is the goal? Well, according to Paul, we tell others about Christ. Why? That we might then present them to God. Perfect, complete, mature in their relationship to Christ. He works hard to see the whole gospel transform the whole person. And I think that is a really beautiful and succinct summary of Christian ministry that encapsulates everything from the, the, the tip of the spear of, of missions in the world to, to the cradle-to-grave discipleship that takes place in, in the Christian church. We, can, we seek to convert, we seek to evangelize, we seek to win people over, that we might then bring them in and disciple them to be like Christ, that we might present them to God complete and mature and perfect. This is in, op in opposition to the deceivers. That's not what they had in mind at all. No, the deceivers' goal is to initiate believers into their, uh, well, you remember back in August we talked about you know, the, the mystery cults that pervaded that culture. 
And so the goal of the deceiver was to, to take the, the, God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and rework it in such a way that it would convince people to come join their sort of clique. Come join our secret society. Come and, and experience the, the spiritual you know, power and, and, and experiences that you can have in our sort of secret little group. And, and that's, that's sort of, it's a mystery that you can come discover with us. And Paul says, no, the only mystery that matters in all of the world is God's, what he, call, what he calls hidden plan, which is no longer hidden. What, what God has kept to himself throughout the generations, that is the fullness of, of his plan to bring all things together in his son and reconcile the world to himself, this plan that God has kept to himself for generations past, he has made it plainly available to all the world. He, he's, letting, he's letting the world know, he's letting the world in on his secret. And it is revealed to and through the church. And this knowledge, this revelation, doesn't come by secret ritual, but by public proclamation. And its benefits are not for the privileged few, but for all who would come to Christ. All the benefits of, of God's hidden plan from eternity past are available to even you and me if we are in his Son and it is through the proclamation of this whole gospel to all the nations that makes it known. God has disclosed this to the church. He's then entrusted it to the church to tell all the world. Now there's a dimension to this telling all the world and proclaiming this, this mystery of God that I want to zero in on for the remainder of our time here this morning. You, you uh, look again at your Bibles there. Look at, look, look at verse 24. And I know... You and I have read this before, perhaps many times in your quiet time, or you've heard it, you know, in a message or, you know, just in conversation. It's a passage, or, or I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, a verse that you're familiar with, and maybe you've spent some time, like, really trying to figure out what exactly Paul's saying. Maybe you haven't. Um, but I want to take a few minutes and look more deeply at verse 24 and what he says here. He says, and I'm reading from the NLT here, he says, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. But I, I'm curious um, if you have probably, you've probably heard that in a different translation, which sounds a little more literal to what the Greek says. And I'm going to read that to you from the ESV. And it goes like this. Listen to this. Tell me what you think he's, or ask yourself what you think Paul's actually saying here. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So Paul's saying, in my own sufferings, in my flesh, when I am out proclaiming the gospel and I'm going through the things I'm going through for the sake of Jesus, in my own afflictions, in my own sufferings, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Now, if that doesn't cause you at least a little bit of unrest, then you're not listening to what he's saying. There's actually multiple reasons why this should cause some unrest. But I want to put to bed one of them that's not a good reason. Okay? It is this notion that Paul is saying that somehow he, in his own sufferings, in some way improves upon the merit and the atoning worth of Jesus' blood. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that in some form or fashion, what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. You know, he suffered for you, he died for you, you know, on your behalf, in your place. But you know what? It came this close to being complete. So I need to come in and finish up his work. He's like doing you know, mop-up duty, right? 
He's the closer to, take, to go back to baseball. That's not what he's saying at all. I mean, the, the entire emphasis of Colossians from beginning to end is on the final and absolute achievement of the cross in removing all sin in reconciling all things to God. There's nothing more that is needed. God, has, God through his son and in his son has done it all. And it is one perfect, final, ultimate sacrifice for sin. His sufferings are perfect and complete. And Paul's not suggesting that there's something lacking in the vicarious and atoning sufferings of Christ that need to be supplied by, by anyone else or that even could be supplied by anyone else. Even if somehow he was saying that Jesus' sufferings were incomplete or insufficient, there's no way that Paul could fix it. If Jesus couldn't fix it, no one could fix it. That, but that's not what he's saying. So the question is, what does he mean then? That he's filling up what is lacking in his afflictions for the sake of his body. Well, for me, sometimes, in fact, maybe all the time, the best way to interpret a passage of Scripture is to ask, how does Scripture interpret Scripture? What does the Bible say elsewhere that helps us to understand what's being said here? And there's a, a parallel passage over in Philippians chapter 2, and you can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read one verse. But there's a parallel passage in Philippians 2, in verse 30, where Paul uses the exact same expression where he combines the word, you know, to fill up or to complete with the word that means what is lacking. It's the exact same construction that he says here in Colossians 1, he uses in Philippians 2. And what he's talking about there is the work of um, a, a fellow gospel minister named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus uh, was sent from the Philippian church to minister to Paul in Rome. So they sent him on, on their behalf, okay? And Paul says... He nearly died for the work of Christ. The, the, the cost of his life to, to come from you to me nearly killed him. It nearly killed him. He risked his life, this is verse 30, to complete what was lacking or to fill up what was lacking in your service to me. Okay? Now the church in Philippi wanted to communicate their love to Paul. They wanted to support Paul. They wanted to be there for Paul. They wanted to supply what, what was needed in his life. And at the time, Paul was in prison, and their contribution to him, a gift of love, was actually a, a monetary gift. They wanted to send him money. They wanted it as a representation of their love for him. And, and the only thing that was lacking in that gift, it wasn't the gift itself was lacking. It was exactly what he needed. But what they couldn't do was all go to deliver it to him. They couldn't, it just wasn't feasible for an entire church to travel across the known world to deliver this gift to Paul in Rome. And so what did they do? They sent a representative. They sent someone who in, in flesh and blood could deliver this gift and not just hand it to Paul, but, but he could embody what the gift represented what the gift actually meant. If this gift was a gift of love and support and encouragement, if this was ministry to Paul, if this was blessing to Paul, yes, it was the gift that they were sending, but the, the messenger was just as important as the message. Because Epaphroditus was the very manifestation, he was the incarnation of that gift of love from, from the church in Philippi to Paul. He supplied what was lacking 
And because he risked his life, Paul tells the Philippians to honor him when he comes back, to receive him back with honor because he almost died completing their ministry to him in the flesh. Now, I'm hoping that by now, the Holy Spirit is at work in your own mind and in your own heart, connecting the dots. Do you see the connection? In this expression that Paul is using, referring to the work of Epaphroditus, to now he's talking about his own gospel ministry on behalf of Christ. Jesus suffered. Jesus died for people in every nation. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus ascended into heaven. And Jesus, the very Jesus that we just heard about, the the first half of Colossians chapter 1, he's the very same Jesus who reigns over all of creation even here and now. And yet, this Jesus has left work to be done. He's left work to be done. Work that continues through his church. The people who participate in his own self-giving love for the sake of the world. Paul learned firsthand quite well what the relationship between Christ and his church was the day that he met Jesus face to face for the first time, at least the first time we have on record. And there's an interesting sort of side discussion here. If you ever want to track it down on your own, there's a possibility that Paul perhaps was present at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. So maybe that was the first time Paul had seen Jesus face to face. I don't know. Maybe I need to fact check myself. But it's an interesting aside that you can go explore. But in the scriptures, we know for sure that the first time Paul met Jesus was when? Do you remember? He was heading where? Damascus. What was his goal? To persecute the church, that's right. He was, he was looking for anyone he could that believed in Jesus so he could round them up and take them back to Jerusalem in chains. It's right there in Acts chapter 9. It's that, that chapter begins with Luke telling us that, that Saul was uttering threats with every breath. With every breath he was threatening the church. With every breath he was cursing the name of Jesus. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers and that's why he was going to Damascus. He wanted, to round them, he wanted to find them all. He wanted to round them all up. He wanted to take them back in chains so that they could be silenced. That was what he was up to on his way to Damascus. And when the Lord Jesus himself appeared, he said, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. Not why do you persecute those people that follow me? Not, why do you persecute you know, the people that bear my name? No, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. You see, there is a, a connection between Christ and his body that is so much deeper than, than we probably are even comfortable thinking about at times. There is a union that the Christ has with the church He is the head, we are the body. We belong to him. We are in him and he is in us. And when when we are persecuted, he is persecuted. But on the other hand, this is the flip side of this, where I think we start to get to a deeper understanding of what Paul's talking about here in verse 24. Yes, Paul learned on, on the road to Damascus that to persecute the church, 
is to persecute Christ. But as he has, has been, his life was changed by Jesus, and he was radically transformed and converted, and he became an apostle to Jesus, and he learned directly from Jesus, and he was ministering in the name of Jesus. And Paul learned that that same connection of us to him is also the same connection from him to us. And when you persecute the church, you persecute Christ, and on the flip side, we share his broken heart for the world. What matters to him matters to us. And we, as we seek to go out into the world and to share the message of Jesus, to embody the message of Jesus, to, to complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus, we go out in an effort to reach the lost with the very burden that is Christ's burden. It is his ministry at work in us. He continues his work in the world. He reigns from on high. He's made his enemies his footstool. And yet he continues to pour out his love in the world. How? Through you and through me. And when you and I put on flesh, we put flesh onto the message of the gospel. We go out as his representatives. We complete what is lacking in the same way that Epaphrodite has put on flesh to the love offering from the Philippian church. Paul is saying, my sufferings for you are his sufferings for you. My ministry is, it's his ministry. He is at work. And he's brought me into his, his work in the world. And all that lacks today, then and today and every time in between and until he returns, all that lacks in the self-giving love of Jesus is the personal presentation of it to the lost through the ones who know him, the ones who are in union with him. Christians, you and me. The Great Commission, perhaps you could summarize it this way, is persons embodying the love of God and Christ to the world. You don't just go share some story tell about it. Yes, we have to speak. Yes, we, we have to speak it. People have to hear. It's essential to what we're called to be and do, but it's not just some thing that we say. It, it's a whole life. We embody this message as much as we proclaim it. We put flesh to it. We take it to the world as persons to persons, embodying the love of God in Christ to the world. J. Oswald Sanders once told uh, this story in a chapel service at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He, he says, There was once an evangelist in India who trudged on foot to various villages preaching the gospel. He was a simple man with no education who loved Jesus with all his heart, and he was ready to lay down his life. He came to a village that didn't have the gospel. It was late in the day, and he was very tired, but he went to the village and lifted his voice and shared the gospel with those gathered in the square, but they mocked him, and they derided him, and they drove him out of town. And he was so tired, with no emotional resources left, that he lay down under a tree, utterly discouraged. He went to sleep, not knowing if he would even ever wake up. They might come kill him, for all he knew. Suddenly, just after dusk, he is startled and woken up. And the whole town seemed to be around him, looking at him. He thought he was about to die, but just then, one of the big men in the village said, We came out to see what kind of man you are. And when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you were a holy man. We want you to tell us why you were willing to get blistered feet to come talk to us. So he preached the gospel, 
And according to Sanders, the whole village believed. Interesting, isn't it? It's not just a guy showed up and just started saying stuff. It is a, it's that a, a man, a person in his flesh. You, you could see the expression of the, of the holy love of God being poured out in his life through his life. He didn't just say the words, he lived the words. And he was willing to go whatever cost to himself that others might hear the truth and see the truth and experience the truth and that the truth would set them free. And friends, this is not just a description of some super duper close to Jesus missionary, you know, hero. This isn't just the description of Paul's apostolic ministry as if God called him or some super Christian to to do and to be these things. No, this is the very pattern of all apostolic ministry that is entrusted to the church. It is our ministry, the ministry of the word, both proclaimed and embodied. It is that which forms and sustains and equips the church. Jesus said, you all will be my witnesses. Yes, he was speaking directly to the original witnesses then, but their apostolic witness has been entrusted to you and to me to this day. You all will be my witnesses, both near and far. You go and make disciples of all the nations. You go and baptize them in the name of the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, imitate me. (laughs) Okay, even if you want to say this is my ministry, great, imitate me then. Imitate me in all what I do, in what I do, and what I say, and how I live, because I'm imitating him. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord. I work. I struggle hard. I put it all on the line. I do whatever it takes that others might know. Now you go and do it too. You know that there's a, a mission trip to Mexico coming up next summer. It's been announced. We've talked about it a couple of times. I had a little uh, table in the back there uh, during our ministry fair um, it was uh, up there again during the missions conference, and a few of you have, have expressed interest in participating in that. Um, and, I, and I just have to tell you, if you have taken any time at all to talk to me about what is involved and what we will be doing, you will know that it's not going to be easy. You know, there, there, there are some people that treat short-term mission trips like sanctified vacations, I heard my evangelism professor in seminary say that so many times I'd lost count. In fact, he came here, you may remember, Matt Friedemann came here years ago and preached our revival, I think it was maybe like seven or eight years ago. And, and he even said, used that same expression then, sanctified vacations. We're looking for an opportunity to, you know, to have people, well, this is, this is not fair. But if we're not careful, we can think about it this way, where people from the church fund our trip to a neat place in the world so we can do fun things and see fun things and have a great experience and be blessed. If we're not careful... That's what a short-term mission trip can really end up being. And and I'm just here to tell you right now, this trip will not be that. There's not an ounce of of my heart that has any interest in that whatsoever. It won't be easy. It won't be fun. Now, there'll be fun things, of course. I mean, spend a few minutes with me. You can't help but have fun, right? (laughs) That was a joke. Relax. It's not going to be It's not about having fun. It will mean proclaiming and embodying the message and ministry of Jesus to what is called the Black Heart of Mexico. That is home to the largest concentration of unreached people in Spanish-speaking Latin America. 28 million people 
who need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus. And it's going to be hot and uncomfortable and maybe it's to some degree dangerous. And we'll have to work and struggle, just like Paul says. It's a region filled with drug lords and poverty and religious persecution, but it's a place filled with people who need Jesus. Who will go? Who will go? It's not a vacation. There's no promises of coming back. Of course, that's true driving down the road for that matter, if you want to get that technical. Since when do we base our lives on when we know we're coming back? It won't be easy. It'll be hard. We'll have to struggle and work, and we'll come back blistered and maybe get, I don't know, maybe get stomach bug or I mean, who knows anything can happen but true Christian ministry is not meant to be about you or for me it's not about being comfortable or happy or blessed it is about filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in true Christian ministry at the end of the day it's not done out of our own resources and power is it That's why Paul's last verse in the passage we read might be the most important one in the whole chapter as we're trying to figure out how to apply this to our lives and how we're we're trying to live this life out. He says, all this is through Christ's mighty power at work within me. Paul's not claiming to be some super Christian person. He's just a guy who said yes to Jesus. A guy who says, whatever I am, Whatever I have to offer. At men's retreat, we were hearing about all the, all the men in the Bible that we, that we learn in Sunday school and remember, and every single one of them, on their own, was pathetic. <laughs> they're, all, they're all imperfect. None of them had much to offer except their availability to God. They said, yes, use me, whatever I am. Paul says, whatever I am, whatever it takes, whatever I have to go through, whatever I have to suffer— Whatever it is, I will do it because Christ's power is at work in my life. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, it's not just any power, friends. It is the power that rose Jesus from the dead. It is the resurrection power of Jesus, which you have built your whole life upon if you are a Christian. That is the power that he gives you to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So quit being scared about everything. Quit worrying about things. If Jesus is calling you, if he's speaking to your heart, say yes to him because he will supply everything that is needed. And that's the great dichotomy of service for Christ. On one hand, it's not easy. It's hard. It's costly. It is not automated as if it just happens. You know, we can just sit aside and say, well, there's a great need in the world, you know, I'm trusting that someone will meet the need. It's automatic. If Jesus says he's going to have someone go do it, I can sit this one out and sit on the sidelines. That's not how it works. It's not easy. It's hard. And it's not automatic. And yet, at the same time, he gives us everything we need to do it. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't abandon us to do it all, to, you know, to ourselves. He doesn't say, hey, you go do all the thing, you know, good luck. He doesn't do that, but he also doesn't allow us to rest our laurels and sit on the sideline and and be spectators. You and I can go into what he is calling us to do, knowing that he will give all that we need. He will be our supply. It will be costly. 
and it will be blessed. So I'm wondering, as I'm looking for a very concrete, specific application of everything that I'm sharing this morning, I'm wondering, in light of all these things, who will join me and risk getting sunburnt and stomach aches and travel hazards that we might take the gospel to the darkest region in Mexico? Who will come? You don't have to know Spanish. There will be translators there to help. You don't have to know Spanish. And that's a good thing, because if you've heard my Spanish, it's bad. It is mucho malo. You don't have to know some special evangelism technique. We will equip you. There will be a season of equipping where we will come together as a team and we'll, we'll, we'll practice and, 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 and arm ourselves with, with, with techniques for connecting with people and sharing the gospel. You don't have to know anything special. You don't have to know anything about missions. You just have to know Jesus. And if you know Jesus and you're willing to follow him, then you're qualified. Jesus is who Mexico needs. Jesus is who Tanzania needs. Jesus is who North Korea needs. Jesus is who Weeksville needs. Jesus is who Elizabeth City needs. And Hertford, and Windfall, and Morgan's Corner, and the Albemarle Plantation. It doesn't need, those things don't need you. They need Jesus in you and through you. The whole gospel for the whole person proclaimed and embodied by the whole church. Every single person here. Are you willing to complete what is lacking in Christ's sufferings by giving yourself away in love through missional living, giving, and going in person for the sake of another? The Mexico trip is just one of many ways. How is the Holy Spirit calling you? And that's actually how I want to end our service here this morning. I want to end it. The, the worship team is going to come up and they're, they're going to have a closing song. But before, but before they lead that song, I want to take just a few minutes. And I wonder if we as a church, both members here, regular attenders, old friends, first-time guests, whoever you are, if you are a Christian, I'm inviting you now. If you're not a Christian, I, want, I always want to invite you to come to Jesus for the first time. And if you want to know what that means, come see me after, after the service, and I will walk you through what that means. But if you know Jesus, and you're at all open to saying yes to him, I want to take these few minutes to close your eyes and, and respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to your heart. Right where you're sitting. You don't have to come up here. If you want to, you can. You don't have to. But every person, take a moment and let us together silently in our hearts repent. Repent right now. If your life has been ruled by fear, if it has been marked by laziness or apathy or resistance to the, the nudge of the Holy Spirit, if, if there's sin in your life, oh, take a moment now and repent of those things. Name those things to God. Even now. Tell him you, you were sorry. Tell him that your intention is to turn away from those things. Acknowledging that you can't do it on your own. You need help. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the support of the church. You need Jesus, the good shepherd, to guide you back onto the, the straight and narrow path. Repent of whatever the Holy Spirit is bringing to your heart right now as we're, as we're sitting here together.
and now express your faith in Christ, that you believe the authentic gospel, that you have put your trust in the real Jesus, the one who died, the one who was buried, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who ascended into heaven, the one who, is, who has been seated in a place of authority, the one who reigns and rules supreme, the one who has called you to himself, the one who is asking you to follow him to the ends of the earth. Put your trust in him right now. Say yes to that, Jesus. Jesus, we say yes to you. We trust you. We love you. We receive from you. And now, Lord, we want to give to you. Ask the Holy Spirit right now, who are you calling me to go to to complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Who is it? Is it an unknown stranger in the, the circle of silence of Mexico? Is it someone on some distant shore in some unfamiliar country? Is God calling you to be on a short-term mission trip? Is he calling you to be a, a vocational full-time missionary? Is he calling you to enter into ministry and become a, an evangelist or a pastor or a preacher, a teacher? Or is he, just, is he just calling you to go next door? Ask him. Ask him. Holy Spirit, who am I to go and present the gospel to by my words and by my ways with all of my life, whatever it costs me, whatever blisters it puts on my feet, that they might see the reality of who you are. Who is it? Lord, bring it to our hearts and minds right now. Maybe he's calling you to go sell something. <laughs> Maybe he's calling you to sell something that you cherish, that it might be used to, to go or to send another. That's how it was done in the book of Acts. They, they sold and they gave whatever they had to to meet need. There is no gift that is too radical for Jesus. What is he telling you? Lord, speak to your people. They don't need to hear me. They need to hear you. How are you speaking to this church? We don't want to play church and just go through the motions and have nice services. Lord, we want to be, be your gospel message to the world. Help us to know what that means as individuals and as a church. And give us the boldness and the strength and the power to do whatever it takes to fulfill your calling upon our lives. All of us are called to proclaim and to embody the good news. Lord, give us everything we need to do it. Help us to forsake our fears and our uncertainties and our, um, our worries. Help us to, to put all those things, lay all those things aside and take up our cross and follow you. And Lord, I know when we will do that, we will be a church that will storm the gates of hell 
and see real, eternal, lasting fruit in this world. That's what the gospel message does. Paul said it himself. That's how you know it's the real gospel message that's being spread throughout the world. It is by the fruit of men and women and boys and girls who are brought back into relationship with you. Lord, may may that be the fruit of our lives here and nothing else. We want nothing else. We don't want the biggest budget and the fanciest building and the nicest chairs and the best programs. We want to see men and women brought to you and baptized into the life of God. May it happen in our midst more and more as we say yes to you, surrender to you, not just a handful of us, not just a few, but every person here. Lord, show us who we are to be and what we are to do for your sake and for your glory. Lord, may it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that 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 wasn't just me talking, but that was you talking to the Lord. Because if it was just me, then well, we're just wasting all of our time here. I hope you are praying and asking him and seeking his direction. And, and we're here for each other. Let's talk, talk to a friend after church. Talk to a life group partner. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a stranger. And just say, this is what the Holy Spirit said to me. And let's be a church that, that encourages one another and, and affirms one another and, and challenges one another and builds one another up and equips one another to be everything that God is calling us to be. And if you need to come and consecrate your life to God, give all your life to God here, then come and as we sing this closing song and do it. Don't waste another day. Yeah, there's no promise that the team going to Mexico will come back, but there's no promise you'll make it home today. So don't waste another second playing church in name only. Give your life to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or in an absolute sense that you've never done before, do it today and don't waste another second. That is your invitation. You respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. Pastor Jeff, please lead us in a closing song.